You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 28. Today, we're asking the question, how does coordination work in incident response teams? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week, and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So today, I'm joined by a special guest, Dr. Laura McGuire from the Cognitive Systems Engineering Lab at Ohio State University in the U.S., and we'll be talking about her recently completed PhD research studying incident response teams in the tech industry. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast, Laura, or should I say Dr. Maguire. Congratulations on recently completing your PhD. So for our listeners to know, um, Laura and I have been friends for about five years, and we both did our PhDs at a very similar point in our lives, um, and also at a very similar time. So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast, Laura. And before we dive into your research, how about Really keen to know, how did you come about to be doing a PhD and how did you end up at Ohio State University and why did that make sense for you? Yeah, thanks for having me here, Dave. I'm super excited to be able to share some of my research. Uh, I think that my relationship with risk and with safety management is really personal because I grew up climbing in the Canadian Rockies and like the primary goal when you're hanging off the side of a mountain hundreds of feet off the ground is safety. It's about managing risk in what's an inherently risky and often dynamically changing environment. And so that relationship is also quite professional because I came up on the tools in forestry before I transitioned to like a safety management role. And I was really perplexed between these differences that I saw in personally managing risk and then in the ways that I was being told our right to manage risk in a professional context. So I got really interested in this kind of a difference because what I knew created safety in the mountains, being able to anticipate and adapt in real time when the, when the weather changed or when there was like variation on the route that I was climbing or coordinating smoothly with my partner when you're like at belay stations or when you're in transition points, just really being able to approach the climb and approach the mountain uh, and adapt and adjust were all things that I could see that were needed in the forest industry. And then later when I moved into oil and gas, but weren't happening. And so I decided that I needed to explore this um, by looking more deeply at the research. So I did my master's degree at Lund University uh, in system safety and human factors uh, and got exposed to uh, Dave Wood's work uh, at Ohio State and a number of his graduate students. And I thought they are working on really interesting problems and, and they're based in the field. Their work resonates with, uh, with frontline practitioners, as well as academic researchers. So that was, I wanted to be a part of that. Great. I mean, that's, um, that's a great story. And I think that is exactly what uh, Drew and I are about on this podcast is this somewhat difference between safety work and the safety of work. So the things that we put in place in our organizations in the name of safety and 
sometimes how divorced that is from what it takes to create safety in in frontline work, like you said, like decentralized decision making, like autonomy, like expertise, like um, adaptation, and we sort of often try to ignore that ignore that in the way that we take our organizational approaches to managing safety. Yeah, and there's you know obviously a lot of uh, substantial work that's been done that's looking at bureaucracy and organizations looking at sort of the rigidity that it that's imposed by rules. Um, and I think that one of the really interesting things about the work that Ohio State is doing is kind of offering another lens to say, well, what does what does it look like to be in the boots uh, of pipeline foreman or to be uh, in an emergency room uh, when you've got a, a mass casualty event coming in. It gives us these tools and techniques that actually place us in context of work to be able to design from that perspective. So then after all that operational experience in forestry and oil and gas, you talked about being in the boots of people. In During your PhD, you spent most of your time in the tech industry, sort of in the keyboards of, of you know, people working behind computers. So how did how did your question come about and 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 how did you find yourself in in the tech industry for your PhD? Yeah, so one of the uh, strategies that Dave has with his graduate students is to throw them into environments where they have very little context for that kind of work. And there is a method to the madness because in cognitive systems engineering, we're most interested in what are the generalized patterns of cognition and of uh, interpreting the world, noticing um, change and anomalies, noticing events as they happen, and being able to synthesize that to make sense of what does this variability mean for the, the goals that I have for the work that I'm trying to conduct. So when uh, I started looking at uh, research topics and looking at different domains, the tech industry has, has recently been interested in resilience engineering. They've been interested in complexity uh, and in applying system safety to the work that they are doing. And it seems really arm's length. It seems like, well, what does what does a computer programmer have to do with uh, with you know someone swinging a hammer uh, or flying a, a plane? But we are inherently, and I think in the middle of COVID, this is very uh, apparent to all of us. We are increasingly reliant on technology to uh, mediate the world for us. So whether you work through a computer, whether you work with, uh, you know, a, you get data displayed to you um, in your equipment, uh, or whether you use an app to uh, do your inspections, those kinds of things change the way we experience risk and change the way we interpret risk. So this, the ability to study how computer programmers were interpreting risk and managing uh, disruptive events in their world gives us a really great opportunity to look at uh, or to generalize some of those patterns about how do you do this? How do you do this successfully? And your um, central to your research um, was this topic of cost of cost of coordination. 
And it's something I'd never heard of before you started telling me about it. So tell us a little bit about that as a topic, cost of coordination, and, and what, were you, what were you trying to understand and, and what were the questions that you were most interested in? Yeah. So my topic was officially on controlling the cognitive costs of coordination. And so in short, that is the mental, the additional kinds of mental effort or workload that's associated with joint activities. And so joint activities are that work where you have multiple parties whose individual um, tasks and activities have to be synchronized in order to achieve an expected outcome. So this is, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are thinking, well, this is every kind of workplace. We coordinate everywhere. And it's true. And it's relevant across a broad spectrum. So I, I think it's a way to, to ground this kind of abstract topic is to use an example that I think all of us can think about. So if you like picture cooking a meal on your own or like following a recipe and then picture making that same meal with your seven-year-old or your eight-year-old. So it's a very different thing, largely because the nature of the cognitive work changes. It changes from being about the hands-on tasks or the actions that you're taking, pour this, chop that, drain this, to encompass a whole other range of like coordinative work, such as, you know, monitoring to make sure that your, your kids are not going to burn themselves or are they adding too much or too little of a certain ingredient. And it's anticipating what kinds of things you or what kinds of activities you might need to slow down or speed up in order to synchronize more closely with how they're, uh, how they are cooking. So all of these adjustments that you're making are part of that coordinative work as well. And so all of that additional thinking that goes into working jointly with your seven-year-old is the cognitive work. And so those are the cognitive costs. Yeah, look, I can absolutely sympathize with that. I'm not very interested in cooking with my children much at all, but uh, just for that effort, because it's sort of twice as long and half as good. But you, there was a quote in, in one of your articles that really drew this distinction out that marshalling resources and, and coordinating joint activity is a very different activity and very different resource requirement than just task completion or direct problem solving. And I think that's something that we need to think about because I think you also said in your paper, and we'll talk about findings in a, in a minute, but you kind of also say that through normal work, we kind of just expect that stuff to happen. Like we kind of don't pay too much attention to that. Like we talk about the task all the time, but we don't really train for or resource for or pay any attention to how people actually work together. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, uh, it's one of the things that I think is really exciting about this topic is because once you start thinking about it, you realize it's everywhere. It's the space in between the boxes in a flow chart, you know, or it's the, the space in between the bullets on your safe work procedures. So we have, we can structure the activities in a certain way, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be able to perform the task well. There is all these additional sort of demands that, that take place. Another example that I, I use quite a bit is in driving, is if I am, you know, I'm fairly safe and reasonable driver. I like to drive in the right-hand lane so that, you know, those who are going faster can overtake me. But if I have to make a left-hand turn, 
it's not just about putting on my indicator, making the turn or switching lanes and making the turn. I have to look at the traffic around me. I have to anticipate if I need to slow down, if I need to speed up, I need to figure out, is this person on their phone? Are they able to, to notice that my indicator is on? Um, is my speed too fast to be able to, to make the turn in time? So I think that there's a lot of additional work that goes into trying to align yourself with, um, with the world around you. And in slower paced work, we can often deal with the consequences of really poorly designed uh, work or, or with people who aren't coordinating effectively with us. But as soon as the pace goes up or the consequences become higher or the complexity of the tasks that you're trying to do goes up, the penalties for poor coordination get much higher. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy, the driving analogy for our UK and Australian listeners. That's the left lane, not not the right <laughs> lane. Um, but, uh, but yeah, look, I think that that idea, and, and I've used that analogy before for, you said, work method statements or safety procedures in that you can't sit in your car in your driveway and know everything you're going to come across on even the shortest trip down to the shops. Um, you don't know where all those surprises are going to come from. So, you know, organisations need to think about how things how they might want things to work, but also plan and support their their people to to respond to things that they they don't expect. So, Laura, we um, it's great to have sort of a field researcher on the podcast as well. Um, and I think on your LinkedIn at the moment, you've got sort of like three years of interning at IBM. So, tell us about. So, how did you go and explore this idea of sort of coordinated joint activity um, in the tech industry? Like, just tell us a little bit about your your research method for that. Yeah. So. First off, I guess, doing research in what we call the natural laboratory or trying to examine cognition in the wild is really, really hard. And the reason it's hard is that the world keeps moving forward. So as a researcher, you're trying to capture data. You're trying to collect nuances of very complex uh, situations. So each of the techniques that we have for data collection are limited in some way. If you are doing video analysis of something, you are missing out on really subtle cues that are often quite relevant to, to work happening quite smoothly. Uh, if you're doing only interviews, then you're taking people out of the, their context. And so they might not tell you every, or might not be able to tell you everything that they do. And so all methods have some form of uh, limitation to it. So one of the great things about the software industry is there's a lot of inherent traceability. And so what that means is all of the activities that's being done are captured in some way. Uh, the keystrokes on the keyboard or um, the chat channels that they're using to diagnose uh, a, a service outage, all of that is naturally captured and recorded. So for my dissertation, I was able to take advantage of a lot of these natural assets. Incident response, which is what I was interested in, uh, typically takes place in an online chat forum. So something like Slack or like Microsoft Teams, uh, where someone will say, we're having, we're, our users are seeing an issue in this part of the system. 
and someone else will jump in and say, I'm looking at it. And someone else will jump in and say, I noticed the, the monitoring for this system is going crazy over here. So I had a nice natural transcript of how the interactions were happening. And then I could triangulate that with other sources such as um, log files, uh, as um, audio bridge recordings, um, and some of the dashboards and some of the monitoring systems as well. So I was able to recreate uh, what was happening at that point in time in the systems as they were trying to diagnose and, and repair those problems. I suppose it's like like the cockpit voice recordings and the flight data recorders in in the cockpit of an airplane. Like it does, it it gives you the traceability, like you say, but um, you kind of don't have all the context. But you know, if you speak to the pilots as well as have that data, then you get a really a really good understanding of the situation that people faced. Yeah, absolutely. But you may not capture information like the, the pilots aren't going to say, I'm looking at this dial specifically at this point in time, whereas all of the communications that I had were time stamped and we were able to sort of triangulate at different points in time where people were looking, how they were interacting with each other as well. Great. So let's um, so let's talk about what you found because you you, you spent I suppose what became interesting to you is, is like you said earlier, how people coordinate when they're under a lot of time pressure, you know, and, and what we know in complex systems that as soon as we get these conflicting goals, we can, the system changes really, really quickly, um, how it operates. So you, I think what I understand is you spent a little, uh, quite a bit of time looking at tech incidents. In one of your articles, you talk, you gave this great case study, I suppose, or, or story of this, um, this system fault and like a, what happened in like a short 10 minute period, like involving 77,000 users and, and multiple parties to try to coordinate. And that just blew me away just how quick and distributed that system problem actually became. Um, it's like, yeah, I think that's quite a unique um, thing to the tech industry that many of our listeners in more heavy industry operational environments wouldn't, wouldn't have seen before. Yeah, that is like what is fascinating. The, the software industry is operating at scales that are much larger than many other industries. Uh, they're operating at speeds. You know, there, a lot of automation is in microseconds. Um, and so things go wrong very, very quickly and they get big really, really quickly. So even though that this kind of situation was large scale, fast speeds, all like technology mediated work, I could still see the same kinds of problems emerging from a pipeline right away, uh, you know, a, a project on a pipeline right away. And so I think there's a lot of the patterns that I found in how does effective coordination take place and where do coordination breakdowns happen that are applicable, even if you're operating at slower speeds or smaller scales? So I really, what I took out from, from your research, I suppose, there's quite a lot of takeouts in how we think about joint activity in the normal operations of our organizations when we think about working with contracting parties and just trying to understand how to do that effectively in, I suppose, normal work, inverted commas, just whatever normal work is. But what I was most interested in is what you learnt about incident response. And I think these lessons are really, really relevant for any kind of incident or emergency response situation. And you 
So, so if we talk about the findings, you sort of talked through three different ways that companies try to manage incident response, if I get this right. Like you talk about using an incident commander. You also talk about trying to enforce operational discipline. And then you try, then you talk about using technology to facilitate coordination. And you kind of found problems with all three of those, those ways of trying to manage incident response. Do you want to give us a give us an overview of those findings and you know what you what you learnt with them? Yeah, absolutely. So the software industry borrowed from a disaster response, borrowed this idea of incident commander from you know FEMA and from you know, wildland firefighting type contexts. Uh, and they have adopted it to the extent that um, this is kind of accepted as the standard. And so when I went in to start my investigation, I thought, okay, well, well, this kind of makes sense. Somebody's in charge. Uh, you know, everybody has clearly defined roles, communications only happening in one place. And then when I started to look at the incidents themselves, I noticed well, the incident manager or commander actually creates a bit of a bottleneck because they are one person. They are dealing with a very rapidly evolving situation and a very complex situation that requires them to have a lot of technical detail, but also the bigger picture in mind, right? So they're kind of shifting back and forth and they're getting updates from multiple um, different folks. And so what I started to notice was because there's different channels that um, the incident responders can communicate with each other, I started to see this side channeling happen where people would break off and they would say, hey, you know, this is this is going to be a real problem. We need to act on it right now. And they would start troubleshooting something sort of independent of the the incident commander led conversation. And a lot of people said, well, that's problematic. We need to get them only communicating in this one channel. But what I was actually seeing was they are, they're thinking, they're sense making about the nature of the problem, the potential solutions, you know, the, the way to prioritize action was more closely related to the pace of the incident itself. And it was being slowed down by, in some cases, by the incident commander role because they just couldn't keep pace. And we saw, I mean, we, we see that in operational environments. I mean, very, very formally structured incident commands, twice daily meetings, no decisions being made outside of those meetings. And I like the way you describe that incident commander. I mean, obviously, it's going to be a bottleneck, but just the challenges of that role, you know, they have to be working in as well as on the incident. They have to be, like you said, technically diagnosing the problem, but also coordinating all of this joint activity. And then as soon as a, a problem becomes big, then you've got all these management and blunt end intrusions into the problem. So people who feel the need to be informed, but don't actually contribute much to the response of what's going on. And it's almost an impossible position really to be efficient and effective. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would, I would, change the framing a little bit of they don't actually contribute to the response because they do bring they do bring things to the response effort uh you know and and particularly in in the example that i gave in the article that you're talking about where you had 77,000 users well you can imagine 
you know, if, imagine if that was Netflix and Netflix went down and everybody's watching their favorite show. What's the first thing they do? They go to Twitter and they're like, what the heck, Netflix, what's going on? Or they start calling the customer service line. So you immediately have this um, escalation of attention that has to be dealt with. And so, you know, organizationally, there is mechanisms that are set up to try and buffer the responders from having to cope with, with informing stakeholders about what's going on. You know, if it is a high value service like a, an electronic health record or a financial trading market that goes down, you can bet that the blunt end response in being able to talk to regulators or being able to shield um, the organization from needing to give an oversimplified response about what's happening is really important work as well. Uh, I think the problem that you're alluding to is when those kinds of tasks and activities that are necessary to adequately controlling the response take precedence over some of the technical work to try and slow or diagnose the event. Yeah, I suppose that's um good context and perspective. I struggle to get my head out of the operational environment, so I just can't can't um can't empathize with that volume of just kind of like activity that's going on in and around the incident response. Yeah. And I think um, even in like even in a sort of, say, a, a wildland fire context, you know, you could you could say, well, some of the blunt end might be local government officials or it might be, um, you know, some of the sort of communications folks, but their ability to communicate out to the community or to potential other responders can help recruit new resources that can actually uh, support the the incident response itself. That it does bring up a um, one of an interesting pattern, which is, you know, coordination costs. We we can sort of establish that. But you also need to coordinate with other responders in order to handle large magnitude events, right? So you're bringing in a um, you're bringing in resources to help you cope, but you actually don't have time to make those those resources useful because you're so busy stopping the bleeding or containing the event or whatever it is. So some of the patterns of what Klein, Feltovich, Woods, and uh, Hoffman and Woods in their 2005 paper, uh, Common Ground and Joint Activity, call choreography, the ability to sort of manage this, um, this collection of players. And I guess one of the sort of spoiler alerts, because I'm sure a lot of your listeners right now are thinking like, well, if it's not the incident commander, what is it? Is this idea of adaptive choreography? It's about the same kinds of roles and responsibilities uh, in being able to, I guess, recognize the need for uh, decisions to happen in real time, the need for communication to happen broadly, the need to protect uh, incident responders' times to be able to focus on the task at hand. That those roles are important, but it's about organizing that collection of participants to be able to very smoothly and fluidly shift between different roles to sort of backfill backfill different functions 
in that response without needing to rely on uh, one person w- w- to create that bottleneck. Yeah, I was going to, um, I was actually going to put you on the spot and ask you that exact question is from what you learned, whether you thought the incident commander role could be useful with with better sort of coordination and system or processes or mediating technology or whether you actually felt that that hierarchical structure, I think from your answer then, that hierarchical structure is always going to be a problem and we actually need to define a new way to organize the team to be able to respond dynamically. Yeah, well, I think in order to answer that question, it's worth talking a little bit about some of the findings of the sort of what are these elements of choreography that are needed to be able to um, to coordinate with others. Uh, and so there is sort of at a 30,000 foot view, there's this idea of establishing common ground. And so this is the mutual knowledge, the shared beliefs, and the assumptions about the situation that the people that are involved all share. And so typically, we all come into um, a uh, come into a, a group activity with variation to that. I might think we're doing something a little bit different than what you think. And so we have to talk about that. We have to establish what are the important um, characteristics about this event, this group, the other individuals, so that I know not only sort of how you're approaching the problem, but what do you know about the problem that's going to be useful to us so that when we get into the thick of things, I can very quickly understand Dave has reference for this, and I can recruit you to be able to bring that expertise to bear in real time. So that establishing uh, common ground is fundamental to being able to, to coordinate effectively. And what comes along with that is in a rapidly changing event, you're going to have a breakdown in, in common ground, right? You're going to have departures as things change that I might see, but you don't see our mental models of what's happening shifts. So maintaining and repairing those breakdowns are also really fundamental um, choreography elements. One of the other elements, of course, I would love to to describe them all to you, uh, but in the interest of time, I'll focus on one element that I think is, is common regardless of what situation you're in. And that is, if I know that Dave has relevant skills or experience or knowledge for me to solve the problem that I'm facing, I'm going to recruit him. And in order to recruit you, if I phone you and it's, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon uh, in British Columbia, which is, I don't know, maybe six o'clock in the morning there, I need to set context for you about why I'm calling, what's the nature of the problem. And that is in and of itself quite effortful cognitive work because I can't just get you on the phone and say, Dave, I need you to solve this problem for me and then spend the next hour bringing you up to speed. I need to anticipate what do you know, what, do you, what is going to be relevant for you to be able to bring that knowledge to bear in this specific incident And then how do I prepare you to be able to step in in real time? And I think about this, uh, you know, when you're at the gym and you turn the treadmill on and it's like, you know, at 
eight or nine kilometers an hour, you can't just step onto that like you're walking. You sort of have to get your foot into a cadence that it, that matches the, the speed of the treadmill so that when you jump on, you don't go flying off the back. And it's the same kind of thing. An element of choreography is when you are recruiting resources, bringing those resources up to speed so they can quite literally hit the ground running. Yeah, I found it. A couple of things in in your article was really was really fascinating. One one was this idea of following the sun, which I hadn't heard before. Which must be a tech industry thing with um with resources supporting systems at scale all around the world. Which is like if you can call someone at three o'clock in the morning, or you can call someone at three o'clock in the afternoon, their local time, and information is broadly available. You've probably got a better chance of them being slightly up the curve. And you you gave the example of NASA Mission Control. Um, and I think we all know the way that sort of mission control communications work, where you've got the flight commander and the team that's actually managing the mission, but they've got these open audio channels that managers and other resources can listen in back rooms and follow along and kind of know what's happening. So if there's an incident, they can kind of recruit all these resources in who've been kind of listening and keeping up to date with what's been going on in the mission. Is that kind of what you're talking to about this setting of context of having these these ways of keeping people um, engaged in real time in what's happening, even if they're not immediately part of what's going on. Yeah, so that's a that's a really good example of of helping people come up to speed of establishing uh, common ground. But it's also incredibly effortful to have. You know, if you think about your own crew, if if you could have them listening in and looking in on every meeting that you were in you would have amazing common ground. You know, you would have very well-established common ground, but you might not get other things done. So it's about recognizing that that all of these resources, many of whom are very sort of high value in the sense that they're experts in a certain way, so they, they have other work that they need to be doing. So you're not necessarily going to call them in just because you think you might need them later. You know, so they're sitting in and listening in and looking in. Uh, instead, you're you're trying to balance multiple priorities within the business as well. So it's I need this person, but I need them within a a you know predetermined set of or sorry not predetermined but at a on an ad hoc basis. So I understand that they're going to come into these situations needing some a briefing needing a way to orient themselves to the 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 specific context. And you talked earlier about I don't know if this is a this is closely related or a bit of a tangent, but you talked about chat ops tools and you mentioned earlier Teams and Slack and these these channels. And I suppose is the way the tech industry tries to get people up to speed just to let them dive in and kind of I suppose start from the start and and try to catch up to real time by reading what's happened. And you you make this statement, and I like it when researchers put really bold statements in their in their work, where you said that these chat ops tools are nearly useless as a tool for sense making. Like, um, <laughs> them's are fighting words. Well, well, like, so, so I suppose you know, for the people who are going through the internet, it might be. But, 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 what did you mean by by that? And chat ops tools, and 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 is there anything that you've learned about how to get people up up to context faster? So I think in the specific example of uh, using a chat tool, you might get paged into an event two or three hours after it started. 
So how you would come up to speed using that tool itself would be to go back to the beginning, to scroll all the way through the screens of text and of conversation and start reading all your way through those two or three hours. So that's kind of what I'm pointing to when I'm saying that this doesn't really help someone come up to speed quickly. It doesn't help them orient very quickly to what's important, what's been tried, what didn't work, what additional information do we have um, at this point in time. So that that person who's coming into the event doesn't suggest things that have already been tried, doesn't... Um, uh, suggest things that are not plausible because of, uh, you know, uh, the current state of the system. And it's the same thing with, uh, with coming into an event in, uh, in the physical world as well, is that it's, it's kind of like you would hand them a book or you would hand them, you know, 20 pages of notes and say, well, just get yourself ready to participate. So the, tooling has the ability or sorry we have the ability in designing tooling to be able to start from the cognitive work perspective so this kind of comes full circle to where i started with thinking about the thinking and so when we build a when we build a tool that says how do i make very salient relevant information immediately available to someone so that it's as if they were there right from the beginning. If we build tools that says, it's very likely that I'm gonna need to rapidly bring together multiple responders from geographically dispersed areas and very different skill sets, I need to design for them to be able to establish common ground to be noticed or to notice when there is a breakdown in common ground and to be able to very quickly repair that. And this is, it's not an inconsequential problem, uh, but unfortunately a lot of technology tends to start from the feature development or from the limitations of the tool and then leaves it up to the practitioner to fill the gaps between what the tool cannot do and what the real world demands are. Yeah, you um, you spoke about the paradox of these tools both facilitating and hindering coordination at at the same time. I'm just I just wonder because I think I mean this is something that I got a little bit excited and I must admit when I read the article because I think of all of the operational environments and all the emergency response situations and there's not a lot of tech tooling deployed into those situations. I mean we're still losing teleconferencing calls twice a day at scheduled times and things like that. And so do you think, or I suppose, is there, or do you think you can design an incident response tool that can do those things that you said about common ground and, and knowing what people know and that, because if you can, that's got really broad application for, for every industry that um, needs to fix, fix problems fast. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we've been talking about this relative to technology and relative to sort of the, the demands of certain kinds of industries uh, that require us to, to be working through technology. But I think that tooling is never going to solve uh, all of the problems, right? They are, every tool is a weapon if you hold it right, you know, in some senses. And so it can both help and hinder 
um, the ability of practitioners to, to effectively coordinate. So I think not only is there ways that we can sort of design technology that can help support joint cognitive processes, but we can also look at some practices uh, that help to um, establish some of that choreography and to smooth out that choreography so that the interactions between small groups, large groups, ad hoc groups, well-established groups can be better and can be smoother over time. So you... um. Is that what you're working on now, Laura? Those that, that pra- those practices and and that tooling to kind of take everything you've learned in the last four years and help teams and organisations and incident responders everywhere be better at what they do. Uh, well, I am currently uh, working in the the tech industry, and I am looking at sort of how do we apply some of these ideas into developing uh, new tools to aid in incident analysis. Uh, and in learning from incidents, because there is a lot of underappreciated value uh, in being able to take a look at the at the choreography of work uh, and and improve that both in in physical practices, sort of ways that you set up and structure different interactions, as well as the tools that you can um, use or integrate into those practices. So practically from your research, if I, if I try to give a summary and, and let's see how well I understand it, which is probably not very well, but so when you, when you look at this joint cognitive work, um, particularly in situations of high pressure or, or significant time constraints or a rapidly evolving problem, you've, you've got this challenge of how to coordinate resources towards a common goal. So solving a problem, for example. And when we think about that as kind of an incident and an incident response situation, be it in the tech industry or the or any other industry or environment for that matter these ways that we've thought about doing that which is let's create a structure and an incident commander around that and let's get centralized decision making and let's uh keep everyone on the same page everyone within this their swim lanes kind of makes things a little bit slow creates some bottlenecks doesn't necessarily support people to work the way they need to work to actually sense make and, and solve problems and so the other idea is sort of enforcing operational discipline which is like follow processes And that also kind of doesn't give people the ability to adapt and run side channels and recruit new resources and things like that. So we're kind of maybe left with, you mentioned the example from emergency response in your article, starting to think about new teaming structures and and different ways of coordinating and organizing. And also then these ways of bringing mediating technologies in that can just help speed up communication um, and sense making. So is that because that's kind of very different for a lot of industries to go, well, actually, maybe I need to think about my incident command structures and my processes kind of, like you said, kind of kind of in the reverse direction. Yeah, I think that that's a really good synopsis, Dave. Well done. One of the the sort of fundamental things that I think about here is is a very core tenant to resilience engineering, to cognitive systems engineering, to a lot of thinking about operating safely at speeds and at scale. And that core tenant is that people are the most adaptable uh, element in your system. And so when I look at the relevance of my work, it is to understand how do we help support that? How do we design work environments that enable that adaptability and that flexibility to be able to be supported and not constrained 
Because when the world is changing quite quickly and the nature of the problem that you're facing might also be changing, the people that are involved with responding have to be able to change. They have to be able to adapt to, to cope with that, uh, that variability. So I think that's what's really fundamental about this work is about supporting adaptability in ways that recognize you have a lot of parties, you may have a lot of parties involved. And so you can't just have people shifting ad hoc. There needs to be some degree of choreography to be able to maintain a safe operational performance. So uh, complex problems need adaptive solutions, not kind of structured and rigid solutions would be um, a way of saying that, I suppose. Yeah, I, 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 I recognize that and I think it's uh, it's about recognizing the limitations of those structured systems. They have a time and a place, but they can't be the only thing that we have um, in place to cope with sometimes unpredictable worlds. So Laura, is there anything else that you want to say about your research, your findings, what you hope people take from it and and, and do with it? So there's a few things uh, that I hope people take away from my research. And uh, one of those is this idea that uh, to coordinate across multiple parties is not just as simple as organizing the tasks and activities. Uh, You know, a flow chart does not mean you're going to have smooth coordination does not mean you're going to get the safety or the production performance uh, that that you want it's about recognizing that there's a lot of cognitive effort and work that goes into being able to smooth out those interactions to be able to anticipate the needs of the parties that you're coordinating with to be able to adapt and adjust your performance uh, in in alignment and in sequence with theirs, and to be able to ensure that everyone can remain on the same page, even at high speeds or at high consequence, high stress uh, conditions. Thanks, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us on Safety of Work podcast. I look forward to a time when we can fly again and we might be able to catch up in person. But um, stay safe. You're in a beautiful part of the world to be isolated um, as, as, are, as are we in Australia. So very fortunate indeed, but thank you. Thank you again. Definitely. Thanks so much, Dave. Take care. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. Please leave us a review and send any comments, questions, or ideas to future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 